Hi. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can. Brilliant. Hi, I'm Katarina and this is Sound Effects. Um, I was just thinking about the date today, it's the 21st of August and I realised it's the anniversary of Be Here Now. Yeah, that was a, that was a strange time in our, in our in all our lives. I think, particularly, I mean, musically, and where it was it was odd the release of that record. It was the first time a band had become worried about bootlegging on the internet, really worried. And I remember when they, because we were promised the exclusive of several tracks from the record on the evening session and. Just before, I think on the day that we were broad, about to broadcast the first four tracks from the record, uh, they told us that I had to talk all over the intros and everything because they were mad panicked that people would be recording these and that. But it was the first time, you know, people people actually had a real fear that music would end up online. Up till then, obviously bootlegging was just somebody might make a cassette of it and sell it on Camden Market. But all of a sudden there was this global panic beginning to uh, brew. Um, and yeah, so I had to talk all over the, well, I had to talk all over the intros. And when I said, oh, I'm not going to do it all over, over all of them, uh, they eventually said, well, we're not going to give you the music then. <laughs> so yeah, very strange times. That's what really came through in the book for me was just how much you were playing it by ear, you know, having to be on the hoof a little. It's quite high stress. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's difficult putting yourself back in, back in that time. But certainly, I mean, when myself and Joe Wiley first began, uh, I mean, looking back on it now, I don't think we ever appreciated how important that program was, really. And I think if we had have done, we'd have probably been more stressed. <laughs> we'd have probably turned into horrible people as well. Yeah. But, I mean, certainly the, the pressure, I guess, came from the fact that you were only ever on a two-year contract at most at the BBC. So you're always worried that, you know, at some point you'll fall out of fashion and you know you're never going to be on the same show for forever. It's just how long are you going to be there? But I think we were both conscientious. I mean, I've, I've always worked ridiculously hard, I think, to, to get to a, a reasonable standard because I, I have a fear that listeners can tell when you haven't put the effort in. Mm. I read something when... Because um, I wanted to be a DJ from very early age, you know, when I was really young... But I remember reading a piece with um, an interview with a guy called Peter Young, who was one of my favourite DJs, who was on Capital Radio at the time, and Capital Radio was Richard. And, and, and he actually said in this interview, listeners can tell, listeners can tell if you're just busking it. So we always work quite hard. But that, yeah, there is an in inherent sort of pressure in every day going on and thinking that you can't let people down who've made the effort to listen. Quite, you know, quite aside from the fact that if people stop listening and your figures go down, <laughs> then we're all in trouble. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is riddled with insecurity, really. I mean, I remember having a conversation with John Peel. I'm not sure if this is in the book, but the the idea that, I mean, we get sent an awful lot of music. It's always been busy. We've always had, I mean, from the 90s onwards, you would collect a whole mail sack each week, which takes... If you're going to do it well, it takes probably about seven hours to get through, seven, eight hours to get through. And uh, 
somebody asked John once, and I've been asked the same thing, do you listen to everything? Uh, these days you just can't because everything means everything in the world because there's so much music out there and so much stuff online. And we're being sent even now about 150, 200 tracks a week. But do you listen to everything? Well, you try to simply because what if the last one at the bottom of the pile is the one? Yeah. What if that one, if you get sent 100 demos and the one you don't listen to is the Arctic Monkeys? at the bottom which is the one you didn't listen to so you're constantly so constantly a nagging doubt at the back of your head that you're going to miss something so i think that's one of the things which drives you on but but yeah there's you're, you're there's always a little you know there are so many little fears and insecurities i think inherent in probably the, in the job we set ourselves up to do to do it so, and uh, we got by so far yeah that did come across in the book when you spoke about how even to the end this kind of search for that same feeling you remember having when you were a young boy that first time mm. you listen to a record and it changes you or it moves you or it it, it changes your life in some way and how at this point in the book where you said that's what you do it for that you would listen in the hope that you recreate that experience and that you can have that feeling again someday yeah i mean the the feeling it's it's slightly i suppose the feeling is kind of the same but different are you never going to recreate i think exactly what you feel as a teenager because as a teenager you're still finding your way and developing your thoughts uh, and what you believe in your sort of you know inner manifesto uh, in a way, it's always sort of developing. And also, I mean, it depends what sort of age you were, but um, I think, I mean, I get quite angry now about the music industry, but, you know, I think there's a lot of pent-up, just teenage anger that you have sometimes, and certain records, you know, really bring that out of you. And so the feeling is probably slightly different now. But I guess, but in the same way, it isn't. I mean, when, after seeing Idols for the first time, which sort of by chance really i heard a demo and we were in bristol for the six music festival uh, and it turned out they were playing one night so i thought well i'll, I'll just go and see this band i only heard the one track but the gig was just terrific and then weirdly i went to a pub called the mother's ruin after the gig rather than going back to the hotel where all the six music was staying i thought because i'd been to this pub before and it's the musicians one of the musicians pubs in bristol so i thought well, i'll nip i'll nip in there and then about I don't know, I'd been in there about an hour when this band I'd just seen, this Idols band, walked into the pub and I had a fanboy moment. Those things are exactly, you know, that's exactly the same. I had a fanboy moment where I went over to uh, what turned out, who turned out to be Joe and just said, I thought your band was really good. And uh, we got chatting and he eventually, he sent me a copy of what eventually, most of which became Brutalism, the first album. And... I remember I was listening to it on headphones, just pacing up and down this office room where I am at the moment. My other half came in and asked me what I was listening to and uh, what, what is it? And I said, it's finally someone has captured the sound of the chaos in my own head. This is amazing that someone has vocalised all these things in, and in such an interesting way. And uh, I guess that's the feeling that remains the same. Or the thing you're looking for is that point where someone or some piece of music speaks to you in a way which just seems to capture all the loose threads of emotion that you don't know what to do with and turns it into something and, you know, gives you all of a sudden some focus, answers some questions in your life and 
Yeah, that is exactly the time. Idols music, and was it the music or the lyrics for you? It's, I mean, a bit of both, but obviously, the, the, it's the humanity of the lyrics. I think, I think the way Joe writes is really interesting because uh, most writers they will edit themselves into um, a, a structure of a song which probably rhymes. Uh, whereas Joe, you know, you know, sometimes if you you're imagining an argument with someone in your head, or you're annoyed by something, uh, you're annoyed by. A an example, just looking out the window. The, the, the postman is late today when you really need a thing. Mm-hmm. You just think, I wish the postman was here. I wish the postman was here. I wish the postman was here. Most songwriters would just write, I wish the postman was here. But it's the mantra-like style of Tolbert where he just, he just writes what in his head, what's in his head. So he will just write, I wish the postman was here. I wish the postman was here. And it, like you can actually, it's like the, it's like a genuine dialogue really and I think that was that's quite interesting uh, and also it's the buffering of you know tension and anger and love uh, and again you can almost see the thought process in some of the songs where he's working out what's going on in his head and then putting it down and that's reassuring to people who are trying to do the same thing in their head It was painted by a two-year-old kid Hot air Hot air Ignorance is bliss here Well, I'm not pleased To suspect your opinion Like a wretched disease to a point in your book actually that I found quite poignant because you were talking about this blur lyric that you thought um, I've written it down it was um we sleep together so they don't get lonely and yeah. when in fact the, the line was stick, stick together, together so they don't get lonely yeah ruined um, it for me yeah. ruined it that song Yeah, oh yeah, you should never, I mean, I love, I, I mean, a genuine, because particularly in rock and roll, there, I mean, there's only so much rock and roll before it becomes 
stuff that you understand you've heard before whereas all songs are going to be all the lyrics are going to be different peoples what we well, even now what we need what was amazing when somebody like Alex Turner comes along is someone who can just write in a different way writing is the, is crucial to pop songs so I do pour over lyrics quite a lot but yeah there is a risk that what you believe a song to be isn't exactly what the song is but yeah that line in my head I built it up to be a narrative for Britpop London, I suppose, where just lots of people used to go out, but they, some of them I don't think were particularly, particularly happy unless they were out or something was going on. There was a lot of people living in lonely bedsit land, I think, at the time, who wanted to feel a part of a thing, but maybe weren't having as, as a greater time as... Maybe it was made out in the music papers, or they were conning themselves into thinking they were having. Um, was that how it was for you at the time? Uh, where was um, yeah, a little bit. By yeah, certainly the the late. I think the I don't know. I was having quite a lot of fun. I think mm. um, late nineties was was a, was a strange time. I suppose I was living on my I was living on my own and going out a lot. I think at that point in the late 90s, I was really on some sort of music industry crusade, though. I think that's what kept me sort of busy. Yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm sort of trying to picture it in my head. We did go to an awful lot of indie clubs, I've got to say that. Yeah. Um, whether, we, whether we needed to stay as late as we did, I probably doubt. Yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, it's, it's hard picking back through it, partly because I don't remember a, a lot of the uh, late 90s. But uh, I think I was more about trying to make a point because I'd run a record label for a while which just you know, started partly just to, to make a point really uh, that you could do things in a way that the major labels didn't do them which was just throw a load of money at it and hope for the best uh, and then I think after that I was trying to prove a point that different music could be successful regardless of whether it was in fashion or not do you know what really strikes me reading your book when you're describing the 90s particularly during your time at NME it's really interesting to me reading it in light of today's climate because people talk a lot more about sort of emotional well-being and mental health and all of that but obviously in the 90s that just wasn't really talked about at all and yet so many instances that you describe where that was a major issue and I, I really noticed how it was glossed over almost, like you were just expected to get on with it. And that experience you had with uh, Richie Edwards, the experiences mm. that you had even going through your own breakups and how you were dealt with. And I wondered if I could talk to you a bit more about that, if that's, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, Richie's a very good example, I think, because, I, I mean, I, I, it's always strange telling that story because, you know, it's hard wrapping it in the context of the time. I mean, no one, you never saw articles about self-harming in the press. Self-harming wasn't a thing that was ever discussed. I mean, people must have been doing it. But the shock amongst the staff, I remember Karen, the, uh, the editor's secretary, who was a bit older than all of us, was just appalled, you know, horrified that someone could do this. Because no one, there weren't conversations about this. I mean, I imagine he'd been self-harming already, but I didn't even, you know, we didn't really say, I don't think I'd probably had a conversation about it. Question is, can we print this picture? Because it is really horrible. 
I find it extremely horrible. He's upset. People down there are upset. Grown people are upset by this picture. It is an horrible picture. Danny, as I say, Danny's in a meeting. He hasn't seen it yet. He's going to be jumping around. You know, it's it's a bit of news, even if you could say it's trivial. Like I say, within our little world, it is not trivial. It's quite a thing. Morning, Danny. Danny, get, get down there. something like that I, you mentioned in the book that you felt like you were in shock and mm. this scene the following morning and you described this aspect in the book of you kind of almost being invisible in that moment yeah I mean yeah the whole thing is trying to I think I, I, it, it's in the book I got home very late from Norwich and um, girlfriend said, how was it? And I said, yeah, it was fine. You know, they played 30 minutes to a, you know, smallish audience. And then we did the interview. Then he cut his arm open with a razor blade. And she just went, oh, right. Turned over and went to bed. And the next morning said, did you say razor blade? Mm. Um, yeah, and just explaining it to everyone. Yeah, it w was, I mean, it was really odd. I mean, there are different reports of, you know, what, I mean, a couple of people that I I know I saw the following day who say I was white as a sheet. I suppose I was trying to make sense of it all, really. Whether I mean, I never thought I was I was the catalyst, but I don't think I was the I was to blame for what happened. But I have I, you know thought about that an awful lot over the years. Every time every time I get asked it and tell the story, and I'm still trying to work out whether we could have done done it differently, whether I should have done the piece in the in the first place. I don't know. But I don't think anything was going to stop him, and he would have, who knows what would have happened if that hadn't happened that particular night. Yeah, it was, yeah, it took a while, I suppose. I mean, you know, the, still now, it, it is something that, and it's always going to be attached to me as a moment in rock and roll that you were part of. And I'm not sure, I'm not entirely comfortable with that. I'd rather be known for some of the bands I've found, but, you know. It's there. So. Yeah. I, I can hear from the way that you're speaking that there's so, like, almost like you're 
shouldering some responsibility like you feel responsible somehow for that and that came across in the book that you received a lot of well what sounds like quite a lot of abuse for it which seems quite unfair <laughs> yeah well yeah i mean obviously the, the, the i mean it, for the bands i mean it was it was the, the bands obviously and i don't I, this sounds like i'm criticizing them i'm not this would this is the natural thing i suppose that you would have done at that time which is you know to almost to to use it as part of your statement of, you know, this was a, an example of that conviction to what they were doing, you know, to go to these lengths just to prove their point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and their point was I was out of touch or didn't understand. Or, yeah, for, for several interviews afterwards, uh, they were always having a pop at us. But, you know, fair play, I had a pop at them, uh, which is why we did the, which is why I went and reviewed the gig in the first place. But it was, yeah. There is that, <laughs> I think, again, this might be in the book, but I was on the tube train once reading a copy of, I think it was The Face, there was an article about the Manic Street Preachers in Thailand or somewhere like that, and uh, they were on, on tour, and the journalist had interviewed some of their fans out there who said, uh, yeah, we, well, I mean, we understand why Richie did what he did, you know, the ju journalist didn't see what the band are getting at, and also we have a culture of self-harm in, in this country. Uh, so we completely get what Richie did, and if Steve Lamech ever comes to this country, we will kill him. Wow. <laughs> and I, was, I was looking around this cheap train thing, waiting for an assassin, you know, mm -hmm. like is somebody going to leap out. But, and then two weeks later, blow me, I got off on a trip to um, go with the Boo Radleys to Thailand. I didn't go. Oh, <laughs> but you're bound to get critical. I mean, we are, I mean, as critics, you know, you just have to do you have to accept in the first place that if you're going to be a good critic and an honest critic and a reliable critic, you are going to, have to tell people that some of there are records that you don't like and there are records that you believe to not be very good. And that is obviously going to be hurtful to the people who made the record. But so, you know, this was a case of, I suppose, understanding some of the things that maybe I've dished out in my days at the NME to some of the bands who I thought were, you know, dreadful, mentioning no names, Ocean for the Sea. <laughs> what do you feel when you say that? Oh, uh, ocean. Yeah, I, I was quite mean about ocean colour scene because I, I, I mean, this was the you know pre-Britpop days in their very early, very just signed a deal, I think, and they were. I went to see them and I didn't like them at all, and I wrote rather a scathing review for the New Musical Express, and yeah, some years later, it must be five, at least five years later. Um, myself and Joe Wiley were doing a presenting, they seem incredible now, but presenting Top of the Pops did a two-day thing at Wembley Arena, uh, one uh, putting on live bands, and one day was the pop sort of dance day, and the other day was the indie day. And uh, me and Joe were introducing the bands, you know, but taking it in turns, and we'd worked out a rotor, and then one of the runners came in and uh, said that, because I think I was down to introduce Ocean Colour scene and uh, they'd seen my name then gone. No, not him. We're not having it. He wrote a review about us whenever it was, five years ago. So people have long memories, I think. Uh, but then again, you know, you forgive you, you eventually you get over it, don't you? You grow up or things uh, things come along which put some of your petty arguments and grievances into into a different light i mean obviously well, i'm friends with the manic now and um that was partly because when their manager philip died it just seemed daft because we were we both loved this one man he was a 
press officer who I'd known from the enemy days who'd become their manager. I mean, he'd been amazing to them. And he was a great guy. He was just a really, really nice, really nice guy. And to have him taken away by um, cancer just felt, everything felt so unfair. And it, we suddenly, I think both sides felt a bit stupid because um, there are bigger things to worry about than who said what about who. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess thinking back on your, your entire career, all these moments that you've experienced like that, um, you've really witnessed, you've got a sort of view on the music industry, you've talked about this kind of weighing up, this kind of integrity and being honest with mm. what's going on in the music business and how to maintain relationships. And I imagine that's quite hard to do. That's quite a hard balance to, to keep. Yeah, it's why I'm not really friends with, I've never been friends with, not really close friends with a lot of people in bands. Uh, I, I guess that's one of the things. I mean, I find I'm very awkward around bands anyway, because I don't really know what to say. It's fine when you're in the studio and you're doing a job and you're interviewing them, and I am very interested in them and their music. But I, I find it awkward when you're, you know, out of out of that environment. And I know some DJs who love hanging around with bands and love going to after-show parties and you know, have numbers of musicians in their phones and everything. And I think I've got two, three musicians' numbers in the, in, in the phone. Um, and they're people I feel sort of comfortable around. And I know will understand if you know I have to tell them I don't like their record <laughs> at some point. Our friendship is, has become, has gone above the level of you know, just hanging out and it's not one of those, you know, some people, have, you become friendly because by nature you bump into each other and, you know, you're a journalist, they're an artist. So, yeah, mutually you can get something out of it. Um, so I don't really do, I don't really do that. And maybe, you know, maybe did for a while back in the, the enemy days, but I think that was more because certainly when I was working on the news desk, you would, you, you'd want to call people to get a, a good quote or to, check your stories but these days yeah i very rarely very rarely form bonds with musicians i mean i have joe from idols nadine charlotte are exceptions but yeah otherwise i think it's just it's, it's just difficult i try i mean these yeah these days i don't i'm more private probably than i've ever been but then again getting on with it what does that mean for you what do you want next uh, I like to get to the end without embarrassing myself, uh, I think. So uh, I don't want to block my copybook by doing something rubbish. Um, and that could be failing miserably on air uh, or doing... I don't, um, <laughs> I've been asked to... I've just been asked again, will you do Celebrity Mastermind? And uh, I've turned it down for the third time. Because something like that. You don't want to go on and become known as, you know, it's one thing being known for, he was the bloke who interviewed Richie Manick, it's another thing to end your career and be known as the man who scored four on Mastermind. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I just like to, while it's still there, uh, the desire is still there, I'd like to be able to carry on if people all have us uh, on the radio, because you never know when things will change. But I'd like to be able to carry on and do that while I still think, I'm finding things that will matter to other people. And I think the great thing about Idols was when you when you stood in a big crowd and you see the effect that that band are having on other people, 
that you kind of kind of got it right and it wasn't just you. So while it still seems to share a certain desire for what music can do to you and will do to lots of other people, I'd like to carry on and see if we can find something else. Uh, that's all, really. Um, I, yeah, there's there's nothing much else really left to conquer in terms of music. So just do a good job, really. That's that's all. I, that's where I set my sights now. Do a good job. Do it conscientiously. Do it well. Do it for the right reasons, and don't let the wankers win. Who are the wankers? <laughs> Nearly everyone else. <laughs> um, just one final question, if that's. If that's okay, because I'm aware of the yeah. time you might need to go. But um, I was really intrigued at the start of your book. You said that you really wanted to be somebody, and you weren't sure what that meant necessarily, but you knew it involved music. You wanted to be someone. Did you become that someone you think you wanted to be at the time? Yeah, I mean, I suppose. I mean, the the problem the problem is when you don't know what it exactly is that you want to be. It's hard to know if you become it. I, I do, I'm forever eternally grateful to certain people at certain points in my career who helped us get to where I am, um, or gave us the chance at least to prove that I could do some of the things which I've ended up doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I look, I look back now, my mum and dad still live in the same house where I grew up from the age of six, and you know, every time I go back there, and I look at my old bedroom, which is now my dad's office. Uh, and I think like, I need to rattle around this room with my radio cassette player, listening to John Peel, and dreaming of living in London and being part of a scene and going to loads of gigs. I didn't really have much more comprehension of what I wanted to do than that. Later on, obviously, I wanted to work for one of the music papers, and I did work for one of the music papers, and that was great. And obviously, when I was a kid, I thought I'd love to be someone like John Peel, and I ended up being someone a little bit like John Peel. So, yeah, I get, I mean, if anything, I've done far more than I ever thought would be possible because being those days, you know, there was no route into Radio 1 or anything really, particularly for you know, uh, an only child in a, who grew up in a village of population 1003 in Essex. You know, that would seem fantastical that someone from that dull back, middle-class background would eventually, you know, become someone who people listen to on the radio. So, yeah, I think I feel very lucky. Really, really, really lucky. And again, I think that's another reason why I just don't want to blow it and why, you know, even now I drive myself quite hard to try and get it right because it's just fantastic being able to do what, what I do, really. So, yeah, I guess I did. It's interesting. It's a really good question, actually. Yeah, I think, I think yes, it's the answer to it. Yeah, I became probably more than I thought I ever would be, you know. Amazing, that's a really lovely thought and I, I think what comes across to me in this book is how much of a fan you are of music but you kind of demonstrate where passion can get you, where this relationship to music can get you wherever you want it to and you just mm. sort of followed your heart which, which really comes across. It's kind of, I mean obviously beware everyone, it is a kind of all-consuming madness mm. uh, as well, you know it becomes, there were times and I think this is what you what you've probably spotted what you're talking about with the enemy and maybe some of the Radio 1 days that it just you become so assumed into this thing that you're doing that you can't you don't really even see the outside world and you forget about people's birthdays one year I was I got a right ticking off because I forgot to send out Christmas cards to the family and stuff that, that, 
that was the year my mum didn't talk to me till February. Mm-hmm. But you know, you just become, it becomes all important and you sometimes just have to take a step back and realise, you know, it's, it, it is really important, but not at the cost of, you know, everything else in your, in your life. Take that one step back because, you know, otherwise you have music, it's just in your head all the time, it comes to it's so all consuming thing. So you just have, just occasionally just have to think,